Welcome to Skim This. Elon Musk is taking over Twitter to the tune of $44 billion. What happens when a billionaire buys one of the world's biggest social media platforms? Well, it's anybody's guess. But it's raised big questions about the future of free speech. We'll ask a tech reporter to help us get inside Elon's head. Easier said than done. Also on the show, we've got the context on the week's headlines, from the latest data on how the U.S. economy is doing to concerning drought warnings in the West. And later, American teens are not all right. We're talking with an expert about this mental health crisis and what needs to change. There's still a stigma related to having mental health issues. And so youth that are struggling may be too embarrassed or may not recognize that they need to reach out for help. And they don't until there's like a crisis point. And to wrap things up, we're going straight to the root of one of America's biggest hobbies by talking to a reporter about her investigation into the lush world of houseplants. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, today we got U.S. GDP numbers from the first three months of the year, and they showed GDP dropped 1.4%. Translation? The economy shrank for the first time in two years. So what caused the drop? Economists are pointing to declining exports, lower government spending, and a reduction in inventory. And because the U.S. economy is dealing with a lot right now, including high inflation and global instability affecting supply chains, recession fears have also been rising, as major banks warn a recession is needed to get inflation under control. But it's not all bad news. This latest GDP report still shows that demand is strong in the U.S., and consumers and businesses are still spending money. And experts say one low quarter isn't enough to guarantee a recession. Okay, next headline. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. We don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. Dr. Fauci, it's been a minute. He said in an interview with PBS this week that in the U.S. we're out of the pandemic phase. What did he mean by that? COVID isn't over over, but it's a lot more controlled now. That statement comes as we also got some pretty surprising numbers from the CDC this week, which found that 60% of Americans have been infected with the virus. And that number is higher for children, at 75%. So when it felt like everyone you knew got Omicron, you weren't really exaggerating. What those numbers tell us is that most Americans now have some immunity to the virus. And that could explain why we haven't seen a bigger spike in cases as new subvariants have spread. Still, officials say we're not out of the woods just yet. A previous infection doesn't mean you can't get COVID again, and you should still get those boosters. Meanwhile, the White House is trying to make COVID-19 treatments more available. A Pfizer drug to treat COVID, called Paxlovid, has been on pharmacy shelves since December 2021. 
but with confusing eligibility rules, fewer severe cases, and reduced testing, there haven't been a lot of takers. So now, the White House is trying to make it easier for those who need the drug to get it. They announced this week that they're upping the number of pharmacies and health centers where you can get it for free. For more details on how Paxlovid works and where to find it, we'll leave a link in our show notes. Next up. Tonight, a spotlight on Harvard's dark past. One of the world's most prestigious universities says it built its legacy on the suffering of enslaved people. Here's the context. Harvard announced it's writing a $100 million check to make amends for its past. In 2019, Harvard's president called for a formal review of how the university benefited from slavery from its founding until after the Civil War. And this week, we got the deets. The report showed that Harvard faculty and staff enslaved more than 70 people in the 17th and 18th centuries. For years, a large part of Harvard's funding came from men who enslaved people. And some Harvard scholars also promoted race science and eugenics into the 1900s. So now, Harvard's setting up a $100 million endowment to provide educational and other support to descendants of those affected, and to collaborate more with historically Black colleges and universities. We should note, Harvard's not the only school poring over the history books. Brown University was the first Ivy League school to acknowledge its ties to slavery. Georgetown even set up a fund to provide reparations, becoming the first private university to do so. And now, roughly 90 schools have dedicated research to righting past wrongs. Okay, next headline. An investigation that was launched days after George Floyd's murder at the knee of a Minneapolis police officer, tonight finding the department illegally engaged in race-based policing. Here's what you need to know. After a nearly two-year investigation, the Minnesota Department of Human Rights found that the Minneapolis Police Department engaged in patterns of racial discrimination for the last decade. This included more stops, searches, and use of force on Black people compared to white people, tolerating racist language in the police department, and targeting Black people and organizations with fake social media accounts. The Minneapolis Police Department has been under intense scrutiny since the murder of George Floyd in 2020, and officers have killed more Black men since then, including Dante Wright and Amir Locke. To combat the racial discrimination, this recent report suggested increasing accountability for officers, better training, and communication with the public around critical incidents like officer-involved shootings. Meanwhile, we're also waiting for the findings from another federal probe into the Minneapolis PD. Last year, the Department of Justice announced its own investigation into the department's police practices. So stay tuned to see if the DOJ's findings are equally as damning as this most recent report. And our final headline. Water restrictions like we have never seen before are on the way for millions of residents here in Southern California. And yes, that means major limits on when you can water your lawn. For the first time ever, officials announced a water shortage emergency in Southern California. So starting on June 1st, 6 million people are gonna have to mine the tap. The Metropolitan Water District of Southern California says everybody in the region needs to reduce their water usage by 20 to 30% and can only water their lawns once a week. They've also warned that if residents continue using water as they normally do, they may also limit indoor water usage as well. 
The reason for all of this? Extreme drought in the West, including in Northern California and the entire Colorado River Basin, which both supply Southern California with water. The drought isn't news. Climate experts say the last two decades have been the driest ever in the Southwest, but things are getting dire. As water supplies continue to get depleted and the climate stays dry, experts are worried about this wildfire season, as fires have already been sweeping New Mexico and Arizona. It's official, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. And while he'll soon be the proud new owner of a social platform, our own Twitter feeds have been filled with hot takes and doomsday predictions. He just got the worst job in the world. He is now the king of content moderation. Let's have someone in charge who, who actually respects the First Amendment and free speech, so I think it's great. We've seen Musk doesn't really have a commitment to protecting our democracy. His number one objective is to protect himself. So we wanted to clear the noise and figure out what does this actually mean? For some help, we called up Rachel Lerman, a tech reporter for The Washington Post. Rachel, obviously the news of the week is around Twitter. And it's definitely hard to know what's in Elon Musk's head. But what do we know about his plans for Twitter if we know anything? Yeah, so basically what he said is that he wants Twitter because he wants to promote free speech. He thinks that Twitter has become this kind of de facto town square for the world, and he thinks that it can be better managed as a private company, and so he wants to buy it, take it private, and then do what with it specifically? We don't really know. And what was Twitter like as a business before? How does it compare in terms of user count or even valuation to other social platforms? So it's actually quite a bit smaller, which is something I think we forget sometimes because it sort of has an outsized impact, but it's a lot smaller than like Facebook or even TikTok. I think we found that it had something like an estimated 339 million users last year, which is, of course, compared to Facebook's like 2 billion. So it's a little bit smaller. Its business was struggling a little bit. But the thing about Twitter is that so many politicians and world leaders and CEOs and people use the platform as sort of their place to get their message out. So it has a lot of impact. It seems to me like people have kind of reacted to this news, I would say, in three ways. There are people who are like, this is awesome. There are people who think this is terrible. And then some people, I think maybe even me, who think, is this overhyped? Are we just overreacting to this news? Can you break down the arguments in each of these camps? Yeah, it's a good question. So you're right. So there are some people who are really concerned about this, specifically and often because they're worried that Elon Musk will come in and roll back some of these safety guardrails that the company has spent so long putting in place, which is basically to try to keep disinformation, extremist content, hate speech off the site, which, as we know, social media companies struggle with, right? We still see this content spread, but they've put in these guardrails to try to do that. So that's kind of the critics' main concern. That and the fact that they don't think that something as powerful as Twitter should be controlled by one person. 
But then there are people who think, yes, this will be good for Twitter. The business has kind of been struggling. Maybe he'll come in and change things around. Maybe he'll open up free speech. There's like a contingent of mostly Republican politicians and some conservative pundits who are excited about this because they think that tech companies have been so-called censoring them and they think Elon Musk will turn that around. The difficult thing is we don't really know what's going to happen. And to your point, like, is this overhyped? I, I think the answer is maybe, like maybe he'll come in and he won't dramatically change everything and we'll kind of be like, oh, okay, there was an ownership change and we got some new products, but maybe he'll come in with a completely different ethos and things will look completely different. The problem is that I feel like there's like all this wild speculation out there when in reality, the deal isn't even finalized yet. And I think a lot of that speculation comes down to who Elon Musk is in our culture and how unpredictable he behaves even on his own Twitter feed. I'm curious of what you make around this question of content moderation. Do we have a sense on how Elon Musk feels about content moderation? Yeah, so we don't know many specifics about what Elon Musk thinks about content moderation, but he has said a few things about it. He did an interview right after his bid was announced, and he said basically that he thinks if a tweet exists in this gray area between rules, then he would favor leaving it up. So he would favor having it on the site. He also said that he thinks the company should be very cautious with permanent bans, and he would favor timeouts or, as we think of them, suspensions from the site instead. He has not commented specifically on whether he would change the policy on former President Trump's account. Trump, of course, was permanently banned from Twitter in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. So we don't know what he would do about that. All he said is that he thinks the company should be very cautious with these permanent bans. And I think zooming out, this kind of raises some big questions about the power that billionaires have on our national conversation and kind of on our culture. And I'm curious how you're thinking about that. It's really interesting because there are only a few individuals who could even afford to buy something as huge as Twitter. And Elon Musk is, of course, one of them. And so that does put a lot of power into an individual's hands. He said, you know, that when he takes the company private, that he would try to keep as many shareholders involved as allowed. But we don't really know what that looks like or what that means. But yeah, I mean, I think you, you have a good point, which is one of the concerns that critics are raising, which is should a platform where so many people go to get their messages out be controlled by a singular person? This seems like a kind of a big bet that Elon's taking and, you know, it could impact his other ventures because, you know, in order to put up the large, large amount of money he's going to have to sell or borrow against the stock he owns in his other companies. How are people thinking about the future of his other ventures like a Tesla, like a SpaceX? Musk has said that he would fund nearly half of the deal with his own equity, which people assume to be at least, you know, partly Tesla shares. 
I think that some people are concerned, some analysts and researchers are concerned that he might be spreading himself too thin. He already runs Tesla, he runs SpaceX, he also has the Boring Company and Neuralink. So he has a lot going on. So I think the question is, how does he allocate his time? Is he going to be an executive at Twitter? Is he just going to be an owner? Is he going to be putting a lot of his time into that? Is he still going to be focusing on Tesla? So I think that raises a lot of uncertainty for people who are kind of invested in his businesses. So what happens next? And is there any risk that this falls apart? It's always possible it could fall apart. But I mean, we're not seeing any like big indications. Like it seems like in all likelihood, the deal is going to go through. But that could still take several months. It takes time to get the financing together. There probably won't be a ton of regulatory scrutiny, but they still have to kind of like fill out the paperwork and check the boxes. And they do think it'll close this year, but we think it's still going to be several months. Awesome. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, neighboring countries have been on edge. And some are looking for a little more protection including Sweden and Finland, who just this week reportedly dusted off their pencils and prepared their applications to join NATO. So why is NATO the hottest new club to belong to? And how could this move make the Kremlin angry? We'll explain in 60 seconds. Sweden and Finland have historically been neutral countries, and they liked it that way. But after Russia annexed part of Ukraine in 2014, both countries started to get more nervous. And now, it looks like they want to get the full protection that NATO membership provides. Because, reminder, joining NATO is kind of like joining the Justice League. Member countries get guaranteed backup from their 30 NATO allies, security, intelligence sharing, and military training. So, with the war in Ukraine close by, Sweden and Finland allegedly want in and are going to file simultaneous applications for NATO status as soon as May. And there wouldn't have to be a first-day meet-and-greet if they joined. NATO officials pointed out that even though their membership status would be new, both Sweden and Finland have been sharing intelligence with NATO allies since 1994. Plus, the Swedes and the Finns technically broke their neutral status when they sent weapons to Ukraine this year. We should note, there's one person who's not excited to see new names on the NATO roster, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin said the fact that Ukraine also wanted to join NATO was one of the reasons he moved to invade earlier this year. So for the Kremlin, joining NATO seems to equal a big threat. And experts are now warning that Russia could start launching attacks on Sweden and Finland before they join the alliance. As for what's next, leaders from the two Nordic nations are reportedly planning to meet in May to finalize and announce their plans. Until then, all eyes are on Russia, who might not be taking this news too well. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com.
American youth are in the middle of a mental health crisis. Last year, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an urgent warning about the rise in adolescent depression, anxiety, and distress. And now, we're seeing more stats that tell us the teens are not all right. The CDC released a study last month that revealed in 2021 a record 44% of high school students said they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. That's up from 26% back in 2009. And just this week, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a report that found the number of suicides among people between the ages of 10 and 19 increased in five states over the course of the pandemic. So today, we're going to ask Dr. Cara Baggett, a child and adolescent psychiatrist and assistant professor at Mount Sinai Health System in New York, what's causing this epidemic and what needs to change? Let's start with the obvious. Adolescence has always been a challenging and stressful time. But American teens have been having a harder time than ever. I don't think that what we see in movies and in like TV and like what our parents warned us about, about like moody teenagers is totally incorrect. Adolescence is, is a really important developmental time period where there's a lot going on hormonally. There's a lot going on in terms of the changes and sort of the structure and the function of the brain. And there's a lot going on socially, right? I think where things have become a little bit derailed are like circumstances that we haven't been able to control, particularly in the past two years related to COVID. And as more has felt out of control for teens, we've seen increases in different kinds of mental health disorders. We're seeing increases in sort of mood disorders. So things like major depressive disorder, Along with sort of mood disorders, we, we see a lot of suicidality, usually. We're seeing increases in rates of anxiety disorders. We're seeing increases in substance use in some populations. So I think those are the, sort of the three major areas of concern. Experts have been racing to identify the patchwork of things that are causing these numbers to rise. And as Dr. Baggett already mentioned, the first one that people have been quick to point out is the pandemic and the effect that lockdowns, no socialization, and hybrid school had on teens. But she also told us teen mental health was already in crisis before the pandemic. COVID just made things worse. Even before COVID, we were seeing increased rates in, in suicidality among teens, which of course is really concerning the past two years have heightened the, the social and the academic pressures for teens in a way that we in the mental health field could not, there's no way we could anticipate. And now we're sort of unprepared to address sort of on the back end. Digging deeper, researchers have found there's actually been a change in the adolescent brain over the past few decades, as kids in the U.S. enter into puberty earlier. Now, the age American girls hit puberty is around 12, but 100 years ago, that age was 14. And when a generation of kids starts going through puberty earlier, the challenges that come along with that shift from the mental to the physical can take more of a toll, leaving teens unprepared to enter into certain social situations, especially ones that make them feel insecure about their identity or their social status. 
we expect teens to be exposed to some things that we don't expect like 12 year olds, for example, pre-adolescents to be exposed to. And so as we're moving into those exposures earlier, I think it puts these kids at a different type of risk. And I think that's that's really important in terms of brain development, just because we know that exposures during like this really important period of brain development shape the way that our brain functions, even into adulthood. I think parents aren't prepared for it to happen as early as it is. And so in their sort of not being prepared, they're not preparing their kids or they're not asking for help in preparing their kids for those changes. Another factor at play here is the heightened pressure on teens these days. We've all read the stories about kids who do 100 extracurriculars, take a million AP classes, get straight A's, become class president, and still can't get into their dream college. And those same teens who feel extraordinary pressure to perform academically are also exposed to increased social pressure, thanks in part to social media, where you can see everyone hanging out without you or your peers living their best life. Surprisingly, there's still no direct link between teens' mental health and social media. But Dr. Baggett told us, when thinking about the impact that Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok are having, it's important to look at what social media is replacing in teens' lives. I think social connections have, in some respect, pushed out like in-person connections. And so while we're like digitally connected, I think we have larger networks in some cases of people that know us based on what we want to present so that there's more of a breadth maybe of knowledge about people, but there's less of a depth. And so that I think is what we all and kids in particular are missing out on by developing sort of more social media related relationships as opposed to in-person relationships. And so when you're looking for support, right, when something's going wrong or right, either way in your life, and you're looking for support to either validate a good thing or help you through a difficult moment. It's the people that know you really well and feel like they have a deep connection with you that are usually there to support you. And I think that's really what teens are missing out on. Not to mention, social media, video games, and other forms of technology are also causing teens to stay up later and not get enough sleep, which is critical to adolescent brain development. And the final thing that doctors think is contributing to this mental health crisis is the fact that the U.S. historically hasn't been prepared to address mental health issues in our population. I think that as a society, we're getting better about talking about mental health, but there's still a stigma related to having mental health issues. And so youth that are struggling may be too embarrassed or may not recognize that they need to reach out for help, and they don't until there's like a crisis point. Traditionally, we haven't put as many resources towards sort of psychiatry and mental health as we have sort of other medical conditions. So even for teens that are looking for care, it can be very difficult to access the treatment that you need. That's because treatment is expensive and the healthcare system is hard to navigate, leaving some youth feeling like they have no options. We definitely see that certain teens get left behind more than others. It's particularly the low resource teens, which more often than not are sort of the black and brown communities 
teens who are from families that just have less like financial resources, those are the teens that are we see particularly getting left behind. Dr. Baggett told us while teachers, parents, and healthcare providers haven't been prepared for how rapidly this crisis has unfolded, there are a number of ways we can start to address teen mental health. So I think that the easiest thing to address is on the like sort of parental level. Parents just need to be aware of what's happening and feel empowered to have these conversations with their kids. And not when their kids are in crisis and need to be admitted to the hospital. They need to be empowered to have these conversations with their kids prior to any problems coming up. Some kids feel depressed or anxious, or some kids have problems at school with their friends. I want you to feel like you can come to me and talk to me about these things if and when they happen to you, and we will try to figure them out together, right? It's like a very easy conversation, I think, for parents to have. So I think that's that's sort of like the first level and the most addressable level across departments of education across the U.S. There should be like curriculum developed for students and teachers. So teachers are usually the first people to identify that there's a problem with these kids. Kids are in school most of the year, and so teachers really get to know their students pretty well. And so having teachers that are well-versed in what signs and symptoms they should look out for, and then providing teachers with resources to refer those kids to some sort of treatment or some sort of assessment, I think, is really important. And then at the third level, the healthcare system, like we just need more money, frankly, and more resources. We need more money and more bodies to be able to treat the kids that are looking for help. While there are a shortage of us, there are still a number of us out here doing really important work, as well as educators and parents that care about kids. I think there are a lot of people that are invested in this, a lot of people that are care, that a lot of people that are giving time and money and other sorts of resources to this problem. And so, so that gives me hope. If a teen in your life is struggling, we'll leave some links to resources in our show notes. Okay, we know that last piece was super heavy, and we definitely don't want to just leave you hanging on that. So to end the show, we're going to talk about a hobby that we all turned to when things got rough in 2020, becoming plant parents. Houseplants have been go-to decor for interior design fans and nature lovers alike. But during the pandemic, it seemed like everyone was filling their homes with leafy friends. Because honestly, plants were sometimes the only things we could talk to. In fact, houseplants became so popular that one survey found 71% of independent garden centers in the U.S. and Canada saw their sales increase significantly during the pandemic. And kind of like that scene in The Devil Wears Prada, both of those belts look exactly the same to me. Even though all plants might seem similar, certain species were more popular than others. And that's what caused Katie Van Sickle, a senior staff editor at the New York Times and former plant parent, to start an investigation. A colleague had sort of said to me, will you take a look at 
specifically the fiddle leaf fig. This was a plant that was really had a moment and was really known in certain circles and was really popular among the design community. Fiddle leaf figs are trees with dark green waxy leaves that are kind of shaped like, you guessed it, fiddles. They've been a hot and pricey commodity in the plant world for the past few years. And it turns out, fiddle leaves didn't just spontaneously become popular to own. Van Sickle found there are actually Miranda Priestleys of the plant world who are getting ahead of the trends. It's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room. As I dug into it, I realized that there was a whole world of folks that were shaping our interest in plants and were really driving what ended up on our shelves. I went deep into looking at how plants came to us. I realized it wasn't a coincidence that these certain varieties would end up on the shelves and would have qualities that sort of seemed similar. Van Sickle took a look at Costa Farms, one of the largest houseplant producers in the country and found that houseplants aren't just plucked from the ground and grown for us to look at. They're selected. And the process to find America's next top houseplant isn't simple, especially since it's not all about aesthetics. More often than not, plants are picked for qualities like thick stems and leaves that allow them to weather the suboptimal conditions of life growing in our apartments. It's not just the plant that seems cool or or interesting, but it's something that will actually survive. So survival and it factor are the top criteria for America's next top houseplant. But there's another less pleasant side to the houseplant trade. Van Sickle told us that the treasure hunt for new houseplants can drive people to source them unethically, which can cause damage to native habitats and put some plant species at greater risk of becoming extinct. We do know that there is a connection between this desire for rare plants and plant poaching. And so I think you do want to spend a little time knowing the backstory of your plants, knowing your producers, knowing your growers. If you're shopping from kind of social media sites or sort of online sites rather than, say, traditional nurseries or growers or retailers, you know, you just want to sort of maybe ask questions a little bit around where those are coming from. We asked Van Sickle, after going down the houseplant rabbit hole, what did she find most surprising? I was just surprised by the amount of money that that Americans spend on houseplants in a year. I think it's $1.67 billion for indoor houseplant gardening. That feels like a pretty high number. Whether it's, it's plants, it's sneakers, it's whiskey. We're collectors that love trends, and there's these communities of folks that feel as passionate about their houseplants as people feel about their sneakers. There's a real love and, and passion for these things that's beyond themselves. Whenever you sit back and sort of realize the emotional connection that people have with their plants, there's just something fascinating about that. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. 
And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.